Well, good morning. Um, what a joy it is to worship with the people of God today. If you're new here or we haven't met, my name is Michael Shera. I serve on staff here as a pastoral assistant alongside Pastor Eric. And it is, I am excited to open the Word of God with you today. I'm married to my wife, Taylor, and we have two kids, uh, Ezra, who's about two, and Piper, who's about nine months now. If you ask anybody around here, you'll be able to easily find them. They're the cutest kids at Grace Rancho. Um, that's not up for argument, whether or not they're the best kids or best behaved kids. We can argue about that, but they're the cutest kids at Grace Rancho, so you'll have no problem finding them. Um, every night before we put our son, Ezra, to bed, kind of have a routine. We give him a bath. Um, we read his little kid's Bible with him. We spend some time talking about what tomorrow is going to be like. And we ask him, we go through a few questions um, from a kid's version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, just kind of a little question and answer. And the goal here is we want to help him understand foundational truth for life. Um, he's only two-ish, you know, just over two. But he actually does a pretty decent job. We're four questions in. And it goes like this. Ezra, who made you? God. Easy answer. And what else did God make? Not so easy answer. Sometimes we say puppies. Sometimes we say butterflies. Sometimes we say mama and dada. But the answer that he usually gets is all things. God made all things. Ezra, why did God make you and all things? He's got hand motions for this one. He says, glory, glory, for God's glory. How can you glorify God, Ezra? Love and obey him. You can glorify God by loving him and obeying him. We're just trying to teach him foundational truth for life. But these last two questions, why did God make you in all things? And how can you glorify God are critical questions for every person in this room to understand, to grasp, to answer. The full version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. What is the chief end of man? With the answer being to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If this is the ultimate goal of all mankind, if this is your ultimate goal in life, and it should be, I believe this is correct, if this is your purpose, then we must understand its practical implications and its outworkings. And this is exactly what Psalm 15, the passage of scripture that will be in today, instructs us in. Psalm 15 is all about understanding how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, that gives glory and honor to him. Particularly, Psalm 15 is going to instruct us in three ways to live so that we might enjoy fullness of fellowship with God. We're going to understand how to live a godly life that is full of worship. With that in mind, if you haven't yet, turn to Psalm 15. If you're here, you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, grab a Bible, go to the middle and go a little bit to the left. You'll find Psalms. If you go too far to the left, you'll be in Job. If you go too far to the right, you'll be in Proverbs. Um, If you have one of our pew Bibles, maybe you grabbed it from the foyer on the way in, Psalm 15 is on page 453. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, I'm going to read Psalm 15 for us. Read along with me. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? 
Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you once more in prayer. And I ask that you would help us be abundantly aware of our need for your spirit to be at work in us right now. To help us understand your truth, Lord. To help your truth penetrate deep down into our hearts and our lives. I pray that you would help the truth of Psalm 15, the way it instructs us to make a lasting impact on us this morning. That your truth would transform us more into the image of Christ. That it would convict us of our sin and push us towards pursuing righteousness. pray all this in your name. Amen. As we jump into Psalm 15, I want to make something, uh, actually two things, kind of abundantly clear before we deal with the text. First, Psalm 15 is a psalm about sanctification, growing in holiness, not justification. The first time I read this psalm, I remember reading it, it poses this big question, essentially asking who can be with God, and then it gives these almost requirements. The person who does these things can be with God. And it felt like a list of things that if I do, then I can be right with God. I can be made right with God. But it's not a psalm about works righteousness. So don't read it that way and be confused. This isn't what Psalm 15 is describing. Psalm 15, rather, is describing the character of one who worships the Lord. The psalm isn't about justification. It's about sanctification, living a holy life. If we were to ask, how can a person be made right with God? The answer is always by faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The only way that you can be justified before a a holy God and be a worshiper of God is through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you on the cross. Old Testament saints looked forward to the promise of Christ, of a seed that would crush the serpent, that would save them. They believed in the promises of God. And we, looking back, trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. The psalm is not about being made right with God. It's about living a life that pleases God. Think back with me again to that first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the big picture question. That's what our lives are for. And Psalm 15 is going to take us into the weeds. It's going to poke us and prod a little bit. And it's going to talk specifics. It gives us salient, clear examples of how we glorify God as worshipers of him in our daily lives. How we live lives that are pleasing to him. I want to make one more thing really clear. The practical aspects and specifics of Psalm can only be lived out in a life that is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Psalm 14, that Pastor Mark preached on last week, showed us, on our own, there's none who do good. 
none who seek after God. We, we act like there's no God and we mock him. On our own, that's true. But think back with me. If you've been saved to, uh, to Eric, Pastor Eric's recent sermons on, on sanctification, we know that by the Spirit, we can be renewed and put on righteousness in our daily lives. Psalm 15 is all about this practical aspect of your life. As we examine Psalm 15, we're going to see a few things. First, we're going to see the question that David poses us. And then we're going to see the answer. And the answer is going to be composed of three ways that instruct us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Let's look now at this question that that David asks us at the beginning of Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is no casual question. This isn't a passing question. This is actually a question that is meant to jolt you awake out of overly casual worship of Yahweh. The Bible scholar Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. Psalm 15 is like a blinking yellow caution light at an intersection. Not so fast, it seems to say. How do you know you are one of the worshipers the Father is seeking to worship him? It's meant to make you pause for a moment. It's trying to wake you up from assuming, of course, I'm a great worshiper of Almighty God. I belong here. And this question is worded interestingly as well. I don't know about you, but for my 21st century eyes and ears, holy hills and sojourning don't make a lot of sense. They're not common in my day-to-day vernacular. I don't know about you. You might talk funny, but I don't speak that way very often unless I'm talking about Psalm 15. David, the author of Psalm 15, was familiar with these words. And he had particular images in mind when he penned this question. He was thinking particularly of the tabernacle where the people of Yahweh worshipped God. Where ancient Israel came to offer sacrifices and please the Lord. David's penning this question and he's essentially saying to the to the people who would have first read this, the Israelites, worshipers of God, this applies to you. And it speaks the same to us as well. Because ultimately, David really isn't concerned about the locale of worship. But he's concerned about what happens in worship. He is concerned about true worship and communion with the living God. We, ourselves, do not any longer worship through animal sacrifice. Um, that, that is not how we make a pleasing aroma to the Lord in our worship. Romans 12.1, though, tells us we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Our lives are to be holy and acceptable to God. And it tells us this is our spiritual worship. This question about who the Lord is pleased with as a worshiper, that's what it's asking us. Who is the Lord pleased with as one of his worshipers? How can you please the Lord as a worshiper of him? This is an important question for David, and it's an important question for us. And if you think back again to Psalm 14 with me, it's so different. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is none who does good. 
The fool in Psalm 14 dismisses the Lord, but David here desires the Lord. And I think he's asking this question as if to say, there's nothing quite as important as meeting the requirements for fellowship with God. David desires fellowship with the Lord, and I pray that you desire fellowship with the Lord. Before we get into the practical aspects of this, just pause for a moment. If, if you're taking moments, put your pen, uh, notes, put your pen down. Ask yourself, this morning, in, in my life, do I desire the Lord? Is my goal to worship him and honor him and glorify him? Do you desire nearness with God in a life that is full of worship pleasing to him? Psalm 15 is saying, what is the character of the person that God approves? Of the person who pleases the Lord? How does a worshiper of God live? So without anything else, let's jump right in and let's see the practical aspects of how us, Christians, worshipers of God, are supposed to live. We see three things. First, that we are to live wholeheartedly. Second, that we are to revere godliness. And lastly, that we will need to embody integrity. First, if you want to live a life pleasing to God, you must live. We read, he who walks blamelessly, verses two and three is where we see this, and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Did you know that God is concerned with the way you habitually and characteristically live your life? Have you ever considered that the patterns of behavior that are in and out in your life that make up your life might actually not just be neutral, but they might either be worshipful or not? What we see here, these words, these verbs describing the person that honors the Lord are general broad characterizations. They're not saying you can only ever do this None of us could stand up to that. They're saying, if you want to honor the Lord, you will do this characteristically. Your life will be made up of these things. And the kind of person who lives a life pleasing to the Lord lives wholeheartedly. What, what do I mean by this? Your, your, your Bible doesn't say, he who lives wholeheartedly. It says, he who walks blamelessly. Um, but this Hebrew word, uh, root of this word, blameless, really means to be whole or complete. And when we consider what David's trying to get at, I, I think it's reminiscent of what the Lord tells Abraham in Genesis 17. Walk in my presence and be wholehearted. It refers to a basic worship and loyalty, a worshipful loyalty unto the Lord with your life. Is your life one that is characterized by wholeheartedly living for the Lord. It is, it is your life and your actions a life that reveals a heart committed to Jesus Christ in his ways? Verses two to three, the rest of it, shows us that this is both external and internal. It's not just about what you do, but truly who you are. Externally, we read that the person who pleases the Lord does what is right. Essentially, they practice righteousness. We must be people who are consistent in our righteous 
living. To practice righteousness is to do it continually, always. It's our habit. Oftentimes we're strong in some areas and weak in others, and and it belies a heart and a life that doesn't truly practice righteousness. I think this phrase really describes the kind of person who, who Monday through Saturday is the same person they are on Sunday morning, sitting in church right here, right now. If we're honest with ourselves, this is really, really, really hard to do. You're here right now. Not many of you are currently smiling, but I think you're joyful. I think you're most likely happy to be here. You're eager to worship the Lord, to commit yourself to him this morning, and to join in worship with God's people. But tomorrow morning, a dreaded Monday morning when your alarm goes off, what will you be like? What will you display for your kids, for your spouse this week? Tomorrow morning when you get in the office or log in on a computer to the office from your bed, what will your coworkers experience from you? Will it be the same joyful, eager worshiper that is sitting before me now? Or will it be something different? Something less? This verse does not say that the wholehearted worshiper is someone who practices joyful worship to the Lord on Sunday and forgets the rest of the week. Bible scholar Daniel Block, in a class he was teaching, recently put it this way. If what we do on the other six days isn't true worship, then what we do on the seventh day can't be true worship either. The worshiper who pleases the Lord consistently worships the Lord throughout their life, day to day, moment by moment. We see that the person who pleases the Lord isn't just externally acting. It's not just what others experience from you, but it's internal. We see that the person who walks blamelessly, who lives wholeheartedly, speaks truth in their heart. This is in verse 2 again. External righteousness is something that everybody around you can see. And in that regard, it's something that can be easy to do. Because you're concerned, perhaps, and I'm often concerned about what other people think about me. Do they think I'm living a holy life? What would my actions show them? But your internal righteousness, your pursuit of what is right in your heart, is only open to you and the Lord. There's only two people that see it. And this is where I think this becomes convict. This becomes hard to swallow. Because righteous living isn't just about what you show us this morning. You you could have all the right appearances, all the right answers. You could do all the right actions and deeds. And everybody could think, wow, Joe Schmo is a great guy. He really honors the Lord. And yet you could be dead inside. Absolutely lifeless. You can sing praises to God this morning and tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, curse God in your heart. Do the external realities of your life flow from a pure heart devoted to the Lord that pursues righteousness first there? In high school and college, I, I ran distance. I was a distance runner. I ran cross country and track. Um, in college, we ran eight-kilometer races. 
This is like about five miles, 4.98 miles, if you want to be really you know, specific with it. If there's one thing that I know to be very true about running, it's that you can't fake it. I'm talking about racing fast. You can't fake being fit when you're a runner. Because running fitness is all aerobic. It's all what you've built up in your heart, what your aerobic capacity really is. You run a five-mile race, everybody can run the first 400 meters fast, a lot of guys can run the first mile fast, and a lot of them run really slow after that. And it just tells you, that guy's not fit, he's not ready. It's the same thing with our lives. You might be able to put on a facade of being externally righteous, but it will fizzle out. The condition of your heart will bleed out of your life no matter how hard you try to mask it with other things. Sooner or later, your heart will be known and you must focus there first. Righteous living never starts on the outside. True righteous living. Godly living originates on the inside. With a heart that is wholly devoted to the Lord in pursuing his ways. So I encourage you this morning, cultivate in your heart, in your life, in your mind, true worship of the living God. Entrust yourself to him. Follow him. As Ezra would say, love and obey him. This righteousness that must start in our heart though, it it will come out. It does have some natural expectations. Psalm 15 states the one who is worthy of fellowship with Yahweh, the one who lives wholeheartedly, has righteous speech and righteous conduct towards other people. If we are to live wholly committed lives to the Lord, then we will neither slander, it tells us, nor speak derisively about others. He does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The most common form of slanderous speech, I think in our lives and in our churches today, is gossip. James Montgomery Boyce said this about gossip. I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. This is what he would say. So I say, don't do it. Bite your tongue before you criticize another Christian. Those are sharp words. But he's right. The world heaps enough scorn, enough just anger upon the church and faithful Christians already. So why would we join in on that work? Matthew Poole called it a a diabolical work. Why would we join in on the diabolical work of tearing down other Christians? Why would we gossip? Why would we slander? There's no such place for this kind of speech in the church, in the Christian life. But it's not just our speech that's meant to be tempered. It's our actions towards others. The worthy worshiper is characterized by doing no evil and taking no reproach against another person. So it was an interesting one as I was sitting here thinking about this this week and I was trying to figure out and I was reading, what, what's he getting at here? What's the thrust behind David's words? How, how does this impact me on a day-to-day level? And I mean, guys, no one typically is going around with like a pitchfork or a hoe and like, Stabbing their neighbor in the back, right? Like you're not doing big evil most of the time. 
I think the question really for us is do you treat other people with respect? Especially those whom you view as having a less important status in life than yourself. We're not to take up a reproach against other people. Do you snub people? Are you short with people? I mean, you might be downright mean sometimes. Do you talk down to others? These sorts of actions are a barrier to true worship of your Lord and Savior in your life. Because the godly person, the person who lives wholeheartedly unto the Lord, is not characterized by these things. Rather, we're characterized by speech that is uplifting, filled with the Spirit, loving, gracious, kind. This all must start in our heart. If it doesn't start in our heart, from a pure heart, speaking truth, then it's not really going to go anywhere. And it really won't last. And if it starts in our heart and it bleeds out to our lives, it will impact other people. I think this embodies what Jesus answers when he's asked in Mark 12, which is the greatest commandment of all? He replied, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God, devotion to God always bleeds out into loving other people. He says there's no other commandment greater than these. So first and foremost, let's together as a church strive to be people who are marked by living wholeheartedly for the Lord, both internally and externally. The second thing we see, uh, besides living wholeheartedly, is that if you want to live a life pleasing to God, then you ought to revere godliness. We read uh, of this person, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This statement in verse 4 is getting to your values. What are the values of the worshiper of God? I think we could express these at times like this. Who do you look up to? Who is your hero? Who are your role models? Even whose actions and character might you find offensive? The worshiper of Yahweh, of God, in Psalm 15 has decided affections. He despises and he honors. Let's make something clear though. It's not about you comparing yourself to others or me comparing myself to others. It's almost more about casting your vote, so to speak. It's about declaring what you admire and where you stand. Psalm 73 Asaph, a psalmist, penned these words. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to speak of the riches the wicked wicked easily acquire, their perceived success in life, even their ease in life. And I think so often we fall into the trap that Asaph is describing in Psalm 73. We lose sight of that which truly matters. Surely you've experienced this. 
seeing the status of worldly people, seeing their success, their accolades, and their treasures, and desiring them, idolizing them even, wanting them. We chase after the American dream, and we treat it like it's something that is the key to happiness, some magic formula that is just going to make our life joyful and sparkly and happy and rainbows. Are you buying the lies of the world and revering and idolizing the ungodly in their ways? Or do you seek, do you see the humble, meek, simple, and faithful life of godly Christians around you and seek to model your life after them? Where are your affections? Where is your life pointed? Who do you look up to? This isn't to say that possessions, financial success in in life are wrong. God blesses us with those. Um, Don't go throw away all you have just for no reason. But these things can lead our hearts to idolize the wrong things and the wrong ways of getting them. We so often lose sight of what matters most, not realizing that so much offered to us in this life, this temporary life, is not what matters most. We get lost on trivial, superfluous details. But the worship of the Lord is the ultimate goal. And we ought to look towards people who are worshiping the Lord wholeheartedly and who have lives we can model ourselves after simple, humble faith. We ought to honor those who fear the Lord. We ought to honor them first in our hearts and follow them as they follow Christ. So we want to live wholeheartedly if we want to be committed worshipers of God. We also want to revere godliness. And finally, we're to embody integrity. If you want to live a life pleasing to the Lord, Psalm 15, David writes to you, embody integrity. We see this in verses four to five. It says, he honors those who fear the Lord, swears to his own hurt, and does not change, does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. This is interesting, this first statement, who swears to his own hurt. We aren't very uh, used to commonly making oaths, swearing an oath. That kind of seems like something we just don't do these days, isn't it? Yet, David says, this guy swears an oath and he keeps it. He's getting at the Lord is concerned with our integrity. God desires worshipers who are upstanding people, people whose word means something. Do you think you're known as a person whose word can be counted on? Who sticks to their word? It can be really simple. This is a hard one for me. I get places when I say I'm going to get there. Are you someone who keeps your word and people can depend on you? Are you known as an honest, upright person? Do you keep a promise, an agreement, or a contract even when it disadvantages you? At first, it might have looked good. Hey, this is going to be great for my business. This is going to be, you know, good for my family. I'm going to sign on the dotted line right here. What happens when that kind of turns the other direction? It costs more money than you think it is. Or... Who knows? It just turns sour a little bit. 
It's not advantageous for you personally anymore. What do you do? David says that this person swears to his own hurt, even. Literally in the Hebrew, it reads, even when it hurts and does not change. Do you keep your word even when it hurts? Do you keep a promise even when it's not to your advantage? Are you an honest, upright person? If we want to honor the Lord with our lives, we should strive to have integrity. And it's not just integrity about the promises we make and we keep, but it's about what we value and particularly how we value our money, our finances. You read that this person does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. But what, what does this entail? You don't lend your money out and you don't take a bribe. With both of these examples, David is trying to emphasize that money ought not to be gained and to be utilized in a wrong manner. He emphasizes emphasizes here, greed that would eclipse justice. Even in this context, he would have been thinking about ancient Israel. Um, And there were times in ancient Israel when people were in captivity or or, or elsewhere, they were just suffering. And there would be people who kind of went around and they act like loan sharks, essentially. Um, They would pray on the weak and find those who needed help and they would lend out their money at interest when rather they had an abundance and they should have offered it freely. They would take bribes. They would disregard the needs of the people around them, God's people around them, because they were concerned about having their pockets lined. They were concerned about their own financial success and nothing else. This This is detestable. David's like kind of slamming these people that do that. Your desire for personal gain should never, ever, ever outweigh the well-being of the people around you. So I'll ask you, do you ever put money before people? Do you ever even put money before the Lord? It's interesting, the Bible talks a lot about money. I think it talks a lot about money. You've probably heard someone else say this, maybe even up here. Because so often where our money goes shows us where our heart goes and where our heart is directed to, where our true affections lie. Christians aren't to be greedy people. They're not to be people who love money above all else and seek personal gain at the cost of others. We are supposed to be content people. We've been given all we need in Christ. Let's rest in that. We must be people who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We want to live wholeheartedly as worshipers of God. We want to revere the godly so that we can model our lives after them as worshipers of the Lord. And we need to embody integrity people the Lord can look down on and be pleased with. What's, what's the result of all this? What's the point of putting all of this into practice? What's the ultimate goal at the end? What's the point of striving to be someone who lives wholeheartedly and reveres godliness and embodies integrity? There's a few things. I first, I first think that people, as people that are saved by grace, 
We're called to live our lives as worship, and we need practical examples of this. We struggle, guys. We are sinful, broken people, though redeemed by grace, who often, when left to our own and aren't guided a little bit, just kind of walk around stumbling into stuff. We're not very bright on our own all the time. And so we need to turn to God's word and say, how am I supposed to live? Give me something practical. Give me something salient. Give me something clear. Psalm 15 does that for you. Second, I think the psalm teaches us that we need to take worship seriously. Understanding that worship mixed with unrighteousness, worship that is tainted by greed, worship of the Lord in your life, that is half-hearted, dishonors the Lord. He desires our full devotion, our full worship, so that we might give him glory in our lives as we're called to. Perhaps some of you are are reading this psalm, or you're going to go back and read this psalm again this week. And you're going to realize, this is a psalm that searches me. This is a psalm that just sticks a knife in my heart, and it's bleeding out, and it's gross. We tell Ezra, it's, it's kind of showing us the yuckiness inside of us. Perhaps you're really feeling inadequate at the moment. You're realizing... I'm not living up to this. I'm not this kind of person. And you might feel down about that. There might be repentance needed. I read this psalm this week, and there were so many times I had to repent of things that I knew I did not live up to. But if that is you and you are a Christian, do not lose hope. Cling to Christ. You've been made new. Remember, Eric said you're a new creation in Christ now. This is not the way you learn Christ, this sinful way. Rather, it's to put on the new self. So if you find this psalm searching you, digging into your heart and revealing ugly dirt, repent. Don't wallow in your sin and say, woe is me. But recognize it, repent of it. Be renewed by the Spirit. Trust in Christ that he is transforming you. If you're a Christian, God is at work in your life. He is helping you be these things. Trust him to do that. Live this life that will honor and please him. We need to remember this is only possible because of the work of Christ in our lives. You you can only be a true worshiper of God if you are a child of God. There very likely are those of you sitting here this morning who do not know the Lord. You need to hear the gospel. You need to hear that you are a sinner condemned before God because you have broken his law. The perfect creator and author of all things, you've broken his moral law and you stand condemned before him. But that's not it. You're not left to yourself. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in the place of sinners, both fully man and fully God. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of anyone who would trust in him. So that if you trust in his work on the cross, his blood shed for you, and his resurrection that defeats sin and death, then you can be saved. You need only to repent and trust him in faith then you too can be a worshiper of God. You can be made right before him. 
fellowship with him. And you can seek these things so that your life might honor him. Verse 5, at the very end of Psalm 15, says, He who does these things shall never be moved. A person who lives righteously, reveres godliness, deals honestly, is someone who shall never be moved. To be honest, I didn't expect the psalm to end this way. I thought that this psalm was going to end and say, the person who does these things will sojourn in your tent and dwell on your holy hill. But it's different. It's different than this. The person who does these things will never be moved. I think what David's getting at here is that this is a declaration of assurance to the worshipers of God. Those who are marked by these things, those who are saved and desire to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord are people who enjoy God's presence and are kept in his grip continuously and permanently. This psalm begins by asking about communion, fellowship with God, and it ends with security. A commentator named Dale Ralph Davis calls this vintage or classic Yahweh. That God always has a way of going beyond, think about Ephesians 3, what we ask or even imagine. You can't earn the security from the Lord. He does it. He secures it. He's the one who has set you on the path of salvation so that you might walk in righteousness. And he is the one who will keep you to the end. God has saved you. He's at work in you to help you become one of these worshipers. When we read this, we can only help but praise God. Worship is in order. We need to let this reality drive us to praise the Lord with our lives all the more. Let's allow these realities and these truths to push us and thrust us into full-hearted devotion and worship of God Almighty. Let's seek to honor him by righteous living, godly reverence. Let's be upright people. Why? Not for your glory, not for my glory, but for the ultimate purpose you have been created. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Love and obey him. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Lord, we know that on our own we will struggle to worship you adequately. We confess that we are so often people who try to do these things in our own strength. We try to please you and we're just trying to muster up anything we can that just kind of sits around that's ours. But really what we need is your spirit empower us to live right lives. So we pray that you would give us great dependence upon yourself. That as you help us to live righteously, we would not become boastful or arrogant in our actions. But that our worship would stem from hearts that are set on and devoted to you first. That righteousness and godliness and purity would be formed there first and foremost. And that from that, We would live lives that so please you that it spills out and affects others and blesses them 
and shows a watching world the goodness of God. We pray this in your name, amen.